I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have Jim Biggs on for interview. Um, Jim, how are you doing this morning? Peachy keen, Jason. Good. I'm glad. Um, so Jim is a founding partner at Jeroma Enterprises and the GOB Network. Uh, Jim controls real estate in Illinois, Texas, and Oklahoma, and has served as a key principal for both Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. He has the liquidity and net worth to help you close your deal as a co-sponsor or G, uh, KP and GP. Um, his partnership controls uh, 341 units as a GP and 867 units as an LP uh, across the country. Beyond that, Jim, I'd really actually love to have you tell us your story and your beginnings. I know you and I have sort of talked about it and we have a lot of common <laughs> backstory. So I, I'd love it if you could just kind of go through where you came from and and uh, and then we'll get to where you're headed as well. But I, I think your story is very interesting. Well, I appreciate that, Jason. Uh, and I do feel like that uh, you and I have uh, very similar backgrounds and, and a lot of similar interests. But uh, a little bit about me, uh, I live in the far western suburbs of the greater Chicagoland area, but I didn't grow up here. I'm not a Midwesterner, um, uh, I'm a transplant. I'm originally from Tennessee. Uh, I was uh, born and raised there through uh, my formative years, uh, but I grew up in orphanages and uh, children's homes um, and came from, uh, I, I like to tell people that I, I still have the mindset uh, and inside my head still lives a poor hillbilly boy that, uh, you know, run around barefoot, uh, you know, in worn out clothes and uh, holes in the knees and those kinds of things. And I, I do still have that mentality. And I think it's important to, uh, to know that because uh, I'm 63 years old and I still haven't overcome that limited thinking. But uh, all of us, uh, no matter where we are, you know, between our ears, have the opportunity to overcome those things and, and uh, um, you know, with the right people around you uh, and with the right mindset, you can uh, become a lot more than uh, maybe what you were born to be, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, and growing up, um, you know, poor and, and, uh, and bouncing from home to home to home, um, I never really knew anyone or uh, had anyone uh, in my life that uh, was a business owner, uh, never had anyone uh, really that I knew that uh, had gone to college. Uh, you know, we're just hardworking people, you know, and, and people with good hearts, you know, obviously, if they're taking in orphan kids and things like that, they have a good heart. Uh, so I never um, felt a lack of love. Uh, but I, but I was always, you know, an angry young man, uh, just because of, of the circumstances, even though there was a lot of people reaching out, I, I never really felt loved, um, you know, because I was given up. Um, but regardless, um, I was lucky enough that 
somewhere along the way, um, I had some people in my life that encouraged me to read. And some books that I read very, very early in my life uh, started to have an influence on me, started to push me in a, in a certain direction and opened up some, um, you know, some doors and allowed me to peek into uh, a different kind of mindset that, uh, that I wasn't raised with. And um, I actually um, left high school early, uh, didn't finish, uh, got a GED um, and joined the Air Force um, and, and walked away from some other opportunities that I had. And whether or not it was the right decision, you know, uh, who knows, but, uh, but I did join what we affectionately uh, call the walking Air Force. I was uh, recruited into the Global Survival Instructor Program. And, uh, and, and I really loved it. It allowed me to be just a big boy scout and be outdoors all the time and uh, an element that I felt very, very comfortable in. But unfortunately I got hurt uh, very early on um, and was not allowed to continue in that, uh, in that uh, service area and was told that uh, I would have to sit behind a desk or take some other type of job that uh, would not allow me to uh, continue uh, along the, the path that I had intended. And long story short, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I was very, very young. And the doctors said, look, um, you know, they put me out on what was known as TDRL, Temporary Disability Retirement List. And I went out and, and uh, had found some jobs and was doing okay. Um, and so once every year you had to fly uh, if I remember right, it was Wichita Falls, uh, the base in Wichita Falls, Texas, and uh, they'd reevaluate you. And they told me that um, I was doing much better in life than, uh, than in making a lot more money than I would if I stayed in the military. So I might as well just get out. And I said, <laughs> okay. And uh, so they discharged me uh, honorably, of course. But uh, what I didn't know was that I was giving away a lot of benefits. Uh, and uh, so you, you learn those things later in life. But that started me down a path of, um, that would lead to a lot of entrepreneurial pursuits. Uh, most of my adult life, uh, I've been a business owner uh, in, in several different industries. Um, the largest part of that, though, was in the automotive industry, uh, where I owned uh, several uh, new car franchises. But, uh, you know, but before I got there, my uh, one of my very first businesses um, was with a, um, uh, a friend, a, a very close friend that uh, that I had in high school, I actually worked for him. Uh, he had given me one of my one of my early jobs. Uh, and it was uh, not unusual for me to have a job before school. Uh, and then after football practice, go to another job. Uh, that was, uh, you know, kind of my high school years, formative years, and he was one of those after school jobs. The before school jobs always were either, um, you know, on a farm uh, or um, on a, a, a baling hay, you know, shoveling um, chicken poop and, uh, you know, and, and working with hogs and stuff like that. And, and after school was actually uh, working for a very large retail chain. Um, and that was uh, the, the friend that I had given me that job. And we uh, eventually went into business together and, and opened up um, a small retail establishment. And uh, back in the day when people actually used cameras, there was a thing that you couldn't actually make a phone call with. 
you know, all it did was take a picture. And uh, that used to be a very, very popular hobby and a very, very popular uh, uh, thing, you know, gadgetry or, or you know, uh, if people today want to buy all the latest tech. Back then they wanted to buy the latest photographic equipment. Right. And so we had a small uh, camera shop and um, that we opened up in, uh, in one of the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we were doing very, very well. And, um, you know, one morning I arrived at the shop uh, to open it up and he wasn't there, which was very unusual because he always beat me to the shop. Um, so I opened the shop and called his wife and said, uh, you know, is Brian okay? And she goes, well, I've got some bad news. And I'm like, well, what's the bad news? And she goes, well, Brian's been arrested. And I'm like, well, what happened? What's wrong? You know, what's going on? And she broke down in tears and told me that um, Brian had been accused of child molestation. And as it turns out, it wasn't accused. It was true. He went to prison. And uh, I tell that story um, really to only say that this started a pattern for me, uh, not a pattern that uh, that I'm uh, proud of, or but it's but it is um, part of my story and it's part of how I arrived where I am. Um, but you know, the, the thing that I wanted to highlight there is that uh, I think it's Brandon Turner who said that we all have a secret uh, power or a secret sauce. Each one of us has something special. And uh, you know, I, I <clears throat> had been listening to um, you know, their story and, and their journey for a couple of years. And, and could never, every time I heard that, I could never figure out, well, what's my secret power? What's my secret sauce? You know, I just, I never felt that I had anything. And uh, so I started jokingly telling everyone that my secret power was picking bad partners. And that if you, uh, <laughs> if you needed any help uh, on the road to success, you know, just line up all your possibilities, tell me to pick the best ones and go the opposite way. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I said that uh, is it, it, it is a joke, uh, but it, in some ways it's not a joke because uh, that pattern of getting into bad partnerships was one that has followed me uh, through much of my adult life. Um, and I don't know, um, you know, why, if it's just that I trust too much, uh, or I give people too many chances, I, I don't know. Uh, but I'll, obviously, it's something um, that, uh, that I have a blind spot uh, in my life. And so, you know, each time uh, that I've had uh, something like that happen, I've always tried to, you know, get a little bit better uh, each time. But um, when that happened, uh, I, I had to make some hard choices, and I actually um, uh, left Tennessee and, and came to Chicago or came back to Chicago because I had been here before um, uh, after that, and I'm like, okay, you're starting over, you know, what do you do, and um, some of the books that I had read, you know, I had I'd come to understand that uh, most people uh, build wealth through real estate. And if you didn't build wealth through real estate, um, if you built it, you know, from owning your own business or something else that you would eventually come back, even the wealthy people come back to real estate as the way to not only build wealth, but hang on to wealth and avoid taxes. And there's just so many other benefits to owning real estate. So I thought, well, I need to become a real estate investor, you know, and, and so um, I didn't know how to do that. I had no clue. And uh, there was uh, somebody coming through town um, uh, that, uh, 
<laughs> and I just now realized this, uh, his name had escaped me for years. Uh, his name was Wade Cook. Uh, and he came through town uh, selling his seminar on how to become a real estate investor. And, and so I, uh, I paid the money, went to the seminar, joined the program. Uh, and as it turned out, what I was giggling about was that uh, Wade Cook also um, I don't remember why, but he wound up in jail. I, I think he uh, <laughs> ran up uh, against some SEC violations or something, but uh, I, I don't recall. But, uh, but that does uh, give me a giggle. Um, but um, pretty, pretty quickly after I took his course uh, and started trying to figure out what does it mean to be a real estate investor, um, I had someone else um, that uh, came into my life that um, offered me uh, a different job. Uh, it was uh, a chance, an opportunity to get into business uh, of my own uh, with a partner. And this gentleman, um, you know, offered me, uh, you know, a substantial sum of money that uh, I thought, okay, I can take this kind of guaranteed good money, or I can sit over here and, and try to figure out what I don't know. And so I, I uh, went to work with him and, um, and, and, you know, was doing pretty well. Um, and um, uh, that was kind of the first time that I started a different pattern, which was I run to real estate. I want to figure this out. But then something else comes along and I give it up and I go follow this other thing. Uh, and I think we would possibly call that shiny object syndrome today. But, um, <laughs> but back then, I just seen it as it's just a wise decision, you know. I've got guaranteed money or I've got something over here where I'm going to have to build something. I have no clue if I'm going to be successful at it or not. And uh, so I, I got pulled away and, um, and did that for a little bit. It didn't work out. And what did I do? Again, I'm stuck. Okay, what do you do? You're starting over again, run back to real estate. And so now you've lost a couple of years. You feel like you're more behind. What do you do? Well, I've got to catch up. How do you catch up? Well, go find somebody who's already done it. You know, don't reinvent the wheel and, um, and, and get yourself some training, get yourself some education and, and try to shortcut, try to create some efficiencies. Um, and so I, I did that again, joined another program. And, uh, and not long after that, uh, I was playing racquetball with a, a gentleman every morning and, and he offered me another job. And again, uh, a lot more money than I was making. And he said, uh, Jim, I'd really like for you to help me open up uh, a new car franchise. Uh, we've got this new brand that's coming into the States and we're like the first dealership in the country. And, uh, and he says, I uh, would love for you to join me on that journey. And um, he says, I think you can make a lot of money. And so I'm like, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a new dad now. Uh, I've got a baby and uh, I've got a second baby that's uh, coming, you know, that's due. Uh, so we had uh, our first two 18 months apart. And um, so I'm like, well, uh, that's guaranteed money again. It's not me trying to build something. So, okay. And um, so I did that. And, and that really started me down a path of um, in the automotive industry. And so we, we grew very, very quickly 
uh, in that uh, in that industry and uh, moved up from you know we started in sales and then you know the next thing you know a few months later we've done very very well and they said well we want to move you into the finance and insurance arm and we did that and did very very well with that and then they move us into you know the general sales manager position and, and we're doing that and all the time my friend was running the franchise he didn't own the franchise but he was the general manager of the franchise but his family um was from ohio and they owned a lot of dealerships in ohio and um so he decided that he was going to go back to ohio uh, and take over the family business and that opened up the slot that was my first really um, major, major position. Like I'm running the franchise now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm the general manager. And um, um, we did that for a while. And uh, then we decided to open up another business, which was a sales training business. Uh, and we started pursuing both of those at the same time uh, and was having some good luck there. And uh, we got a phone call saying, um, hey, Jim, um, we'd, we'd like for you. Well, I, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. My friend had gone back to run those family businesses. Yeah. And as it turns out, uh, he's got, I think, three brothers. Um, and his dad decided that he wasn't the right brother, even though he was the oldest. And so he had, you know, dropped everything and come back home to take over the family business. And they decided, no, we're not going to give it to you. And so now he leaves the family business. And uh, he's decided, okay, if you're not going to let me do this, I'm going to have to just uh, open my own franchising and just, you know, try to compete. And, and, and he has to start over. And so he calls me and says, Jim, you know, I want you to come to Ohio with me. I have an opportunity to buy uh, a Lincoln Mercury franchise, and I'd really love to partner with you. And so we leave Florida, um, which, and, and that skips a big part of the story. We had moved to Florida, but um, we, we sold everything and left and, and went to Ohio. And um, uh, as it turns out, the person we were buying the dealership from uh, owned a Lincoln Mercury franchise in another town in Ohio. And um, he got in trouble and with the law and we lost the franchise. And so again, here I am uh, getting into bad partnerships and we, when we lost the franchise, I'm like, you know, now I'm stuck. Uh, and, and each time, you know, I didn't come to these businesses empty handed. I was the young driven sweat equity guy. You know, I was the yeah. boots on the ground kind of guy, but I also brought all the capital that I had. You know, uh, these things, you, you can't just go into them with no money. You know, that's not how businesses are normally built. There's, you know, you have to start with something. And so, you know, it wasn't a lot of money. Each time I started a new business, the very first one back in Nashville, I think I only had 15 grand. But for me, that was all the money I had in the world. Yeah. And 15 grand in the, in the uh, you know, in the 70s was still uh, a lot of money. Big amount um, of money. Yeah. And uh, so the same thing happened, you know, when one of these businesses closed or comes to an end, you, they don't refund you your money, you know, so you're starting over from scratch. And uh, so here we are after the, the failed franchise uh, in Ohio, starting over again, don't have anything. What do we do? We go running back to real estate. And now, you know, each time 
this happens, you lose a couple more years or you lose five years or you lose, yeah. you know, and you just feel like I'm getting further and further behind. And I notice uh, that pattern. I, I notice that, you know, I keep running back to real estate. That's so it's something that's uh, it, it took me many years to figure this out, but uh, there was something um, guttural about that. There was something that was just stuck deep inside me that knew that's where I wanted to be. Uh, but I, I didn't consciously realize that it was very subconscious. But uh, we go back to another program and not, uh, you know, so about as soon as you get through the program, you get started. And all along the way, we are, we are getting a little bit of traction, you know, we're buying, you know, a little single family house or, you know, a little rental and, and trying to, to start building the business. But, um, but my friend calls me back up and says, uh, Jim, I've got another opportunity, but, you know, and it's, it's like a year later, 18 months later, two years later, whatever it was. And of course, we've always been, um, my wife is extremely thrifty you know, and she's instilled that into me over the years. And so uh, we're very good savers. And so, you know, uh, I, I, I save, uh, I'm in the habit of saving most of what I make and living off of as little as I can uh, most of my life. And so he calls me and says, we have another opportunity, you know, but I don't have enough cash. And, you know, you're always the first person that comes to my mind, you know, we're a great team. And, you know, we've always done well, wherever we've been, this last thing with this other guy, it wasn't our fault, you know, and I'm like, okay, all right, I'm in again. Now we had moved back to Florida, and had gone to work with another um, uh, automotive group, um, down there and we were running three of their stores and I'm like okay I'm giving notice I'm going back to Ohio and you know I've got some money saved up and yeah. you know uh, this time I think uh, I think I had 75 grand uh, this time and and of course I, I skipped several others you know first time was 15 and then you know I think I brought 40 or 50 grand the next business and now you know we're up to like 75 grand and we're opening a bit this new dealership and so it was back in Ohio. And so we go back up there and we open up another franchise. And this one started out as a Chrysler franchise. But then very, very quickly uh, in this small northwest corner of Ohio, we started uh, buying up other small little dealerships. Because uh, when you're in a, a county uh, that only has 30,000 people in the entire county, uh, and the little town that we were living in was the seat, county seat, and it only had 7,000 people. So, you know, one franchise is not going to do much for you. So we started buying up uh, other franchises. And we wound up, I think, um, uh, owning four or five different franchises. Uh, and most of them today, actually, we started out with Chrysler. Uh, we got the Dodge franchise, uh, Plymouth franchise. Um, and I think we wound up with Jeep Eagle uh, at that time. I think that, that Jeep had bought Eagle. But regardless, all of that today is, I think, under just one ownership of Chrysler, the Chrysler badge. Yeah, but yeah. back then, it was several different dealerships. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're, you know, chugging along, doing pretty good. And um, uh, one of my um, uh, blind spots, you know, we talked about uh, Another piece of that is that I really trust people implicitly. Uh, I give them the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's just in my nature. You know, I was raised in a very religious upbringing um, and, and I really believed in, um, 
you know, even though I was from the South, it wasn't Southern Baptist, uh, you know, all hellfire and brimstone. Yeah. I grew up in one of those churches that uh, was almost, uh, I, I would today say it's almost like a mindset church. You know, they really preach the positive side of the gospel and giving back and helping your uh, fellow man and, uh, you know, uh, helping the downtrodden. And, and that is still deep inside of me. Um, and so, you know, I, I give people the benefit, the benefit of the doubt and, and a lot of trust. And so um, I've always worked on a handshake agreement. And, um, and um, this friend had been a very, very good friend of mine. And our handshake agreement was that uh, we'd get this business started. And then he had um, three children and he wanted to help them build a business. And so I was to be the uh, front man on the dealership and the franchises. And it was my sweat equity. Uh, and we had a five-year plan that I would buy him out over a five-year uh, stretch. And about three years into it, uh, he decides that the business isn't doing as well as he thinks it should. Now, mind you, I'm sending him like 40 grand a month to live on a condo on Miami Beach. I'm sending him a brand new car every, you know, every three or four months. And he decides that's not good enough. And so uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, he goes to Chrysler and says, you know, um, I want to switch my general managers and, and partners. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively young guy still at this point and, and still, uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't get any joy in admitting this, but still relatively naive. You know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And he and his family and his name carried a lot of weight um, with those franchises, with those manufacturers. And um, he really had a lot more power than I did. And I didn't realize that. And so one day he shows up with a new general manager and says, uh, he didn't kick me out. You know, he said, Jim, um, you know, I need you to partner with this guy. And it became very obvious to me what was going on. Um, so uh, we decided that um, that wasn't for us. And, and, you know, and so we um, I, I just shook hands and walked away and said, you know, hey, I, I wish you all the luck in the world, but uh, I don't believe in what you're doing. I think it's a big mistake and, um, and we'll just part while we're still friends. And um, uh, as it turns out, I was right. I, within, uh, within, actually, I think it was a year and a half, the business had failed and uh, actually boarded up and, you know, sold the buildings and everything else. And, and every month that I had the business, we were doing a little bit better, but it's kind of like buying, um, buying an asset in a really small treasury market that doesn't have too many employers. You can't come in there and, and uh, push rents by a hundred or $200 a month. You've got to have very slow, tiny increments. Okay. And uh, that's the way you grow in those kind of, of markets. And, uh, but uh, again, you can see that pattern was repeating itself. And, you know, I, what do I, what am I going to do? I think, you know, I'm going to go back to real <laughs> yep. estate and, uh, you know, and good again, standby. That, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, uh, I'm behind even more now. Uh, so that pattern just kept repeating itself. And, uh, but um, after the last um, failed business uh, and, and, you know, most people don't like to say failed business, but that, there is no really no other word for it. Uh, you know, I think Rob 
Rod Cleef would say it was a seminar, not a failure. Right. Um, right. But uh, but for me, you know, and you know, I, hopefully, I, I think I learned something from each one of those mistakes. But um, but we eventually, my wife said to me something that really, really, um, it hurt me actually. It, it but it, it struck home. She said, "What happens if none of these businesses ever work? What happens if?" Um, none of them hit. And, and, you know, because we didn't have a retirement plan, you know, I'd never worked for anybody that had a retirement plan. Our retirement plan each time was the business. You know, I'm going to build this business. It's going to be successful. I'm going to pass it on to my children and they'll take care of mom and dad. You know, so I had never thought about what happens if it doesn't work. You know, I, I've got blinders on, I can only see success, you know, and, um, so we, the first time we had moved to Miami, um, many people uh, wouldn't realize this unless you're my age. Uh, Miami Beach has not always been what Miami Beach is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in its heyday, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, the uh, kind of the, the beginnings of the Art Deco uh, architectural movement and beautiful, beautiful uh, things that are down there that you see today. But it went through about a, uh, I don't know if it was 15, 20 year period where everything fell into ruin. And uh, Miami Beach was actually almost like where homeless people went uh, that didn't have any money to, to live. And uh, there was a lot of old people that were, you know, pushing shopping carts. And you could actually, our first day in South Florida, we drove down Ocean Boulevard. Uh, when we when we got into Miami, and we seen for sale signs, they had big for sale signs all up and down the beach. All of those hotels that you spend four hundred dollars a night for uh, to stay in today, they were trying to sell those hotel rooms off as as kind of like a condo, and you could buy uh, you could buy a condo on the beach. Literally, you you open your door and your toes are in the sand for fifteen grand. And we look back on it today and it's like, man, why didn't we buy a bunch of those? Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, not, yeah. right, you're not smart enough to do that in the moment. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, it really struck my wife in a very uh, strong way that um, I didn't realize that image was stuck in her head. And she asked me, she goes, if this doesn't hit, are we gonna be like those old people in, in uh, Florida on Miami beach? And, uh, you know, I've got uh, not, you know, not just my wife to think about, but I've got three kids now uh, to think about. And um, that really, really caused me to step back and do some soul searching. And so I did something that I, I swore to her that I would never, ever do, which is go to work for the man, you know, take a W-2 job. And um, uh, especially not the job that I took. You know, I, I tell people I affectionately went into the family business. Uh, and her family business was the steel industry. And it's not the family business because they own anything. It's the family business because uh, she had like three generations of her family that had worked in that business. Yeah. And uh, her mom used to always have a Friday night dinner uh, and a uh, Sunday morning breakfast. And it was a big family dinner. Uh, so all the family would gather around, there'd be 10 or 12 of us, you know, having dinner together. And um, they would always talk about the uh, adventures and misadventures in the mill. And there was always two common themes in those stories. One was that if you, uh, you were new and you were just getting started, that you'd be thrown into the grease pits. 
and the grease pits are at the bottom of these giant machines, machines as big as a house. And if you can imagine a house with this basement, well, the basement is where all the grease that is, you know, in the gears that are running these giant yeah. machines, all of it falls into the basement and somebody has to clean that out constantly. And there's no lights down there. You have a helmet, you know, imagine like a coal miner, you have a helmet <laughs> light on and you go down there shoveling grease all day long. And, uh, and if it wasn't grease, it was coal, uh, depending on which part of the mill that you worked in. But you'd come out of there and you'd see pictures of people and, and they'd take off kind of like their goggles. And that was the only thing you could see, you know, because everything <laughs> else was just covered in black grease. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like much fun. You know, I don't want to do that. And, uh, and if it wasn't that story, the other story was about how dangerous it was. You know, somebody fell in a vat. Uh, well, you know, if you don't know, uh, steel melts at roughly 2,700 degrees, uh, and you put just about anything in there, uh, it's instantly vaporized. Uh, and there's a lot of stories about all of these uh, unsolved murders in Chicago uh, back in the heyday of the gangsters. Yeah. Where did they go? Most yeah. of them in one of those vats, they're, you know, they're where there's steel absolutely now. no evidence. You know, it yeah. doesn't change the chemistry yeah. in the in the in that batch of steel at all. But, uh, you know, that somebody uh, died falling, uh, you know, into uh, something like that, or they got crushed between a coil or got caught in between two rail cars and, you know, and cut in half and, or were walking the beams and fell off uh, a beam that was, you know, 40, 50 feet in the air and died. And I'm like, you know, none of that sounded really enticing to me. It's like, why do you people do that? And they would always end the night with, uh, like, my wife is, uh, you know, of uh, her family are of Mexican descent. And, and, uh, and so they were like, mijo, you really need to come work for us out at the mill. It's a really good job. It pays a lot of money. And I'm like, I just listened to all the stories you told me. I love it. There's no way. There's not enough money you're going to yeah. pay me to do. That. None of that's enticing. Like no. I don't want to end up in the vat. <laughs> right. Exactly. But uh, but anyway, uh, I did wind up uh, after that hard conversation. That's that's where I went. I uh, went to work for the man in the steel mills. And but there was a very specific reason that I did that, which is they had uh, and still have to this day a very unique program. You can join the mill and get uh, um, a retirement plan based upon hours worked, not based upon years worked. And okay. one thing as an entrepreneur um, you're used to doing is working long hours. Yeah. You know? And so you had to work 12 years to get vested. And then anytime after 12 years, you could retire. And based upon the number of hours you worked, they would give you your retirement pay. So I determined that, look, I can shortcut this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm starting this very late in life. Uh, so I can, I can work a lot of hours, just continue doing what I'm doing. And in the car business, it wasn't unusual for me to work six months without a day off, you know, and then take one day off. And, uh, and it wasn't unusual for me to work from open till close. And so I just kept that pattern. You know, I just kept working like that. And uh, when you work like that, you're putting in, it's more than two jobs. So if you stop and think about, you know, 16 hour days, because they wouldn't, and why did that work 16? Because they wouldn't let you work 20, right. you know, <laughs> so if they would have, and there were days where you have emergency, they always tell you it's against the law. You can't work more than 16 hours. That's, a, you know, the fed will come after you, but on an emergency day, 
when everything would break down, uh, then all the rules were out the window and you could work straight through. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, it didn't happen very often, but, uh, you know, once or twice, maybe three times a year, you'd have a breakdown and you could work 24 hours in a shift. Mm -hmm. or you could work 30 or 36 hours and a half. Yeah. And uh, you would think you can't work that many hours without sleeping, but believe me, you can. Uh, oh, one thing I learned in the military, uh, you know, when we had certain maneuvers that you, you know, you were forced into certain things as a, um, uh, put you in stress positions uh, that you might be in if you were shot down over enemy territory or captured behind lines. And they would force you into these things where you wouldn't eat uh, you'd only be given drink or you could eat whatever you could find uh, mm -hmm. and put out into, you know, very stressful survival situations. And so uh, it wasn't anything that I hadn't done before. So, but long story short on, on that was I worked for 12 years. And during that 12 years, I, I had never lost that bug. You know, it was always like, you know, you can do this, you know, you can be successful. And, you know, that entrepreneurial itch just doesn't go yeah. away. Uh, so after 12 years, um, I had enough hours under my belt. I tell people I got a 30 year retirement in 12 years. And so I, I decided to retire and, um, and, and pursue real estate full time. And uh, so uh, during the last four years that I was there, I wasn't working as much. Um, but I, I had a pattern. Um, I had been all along been buying smaller real estate. But I realized working the hours that I was working, the single family model was never going to work. You know, I had that, that everyone has the same plan. They build it backwards and they go, okay, if I can get $100 a door and if I can buy 10 houses a year for 10 years, I have 100 houses at $100 a door. Yeah, I can retire and live very comfortably off of right. that. Right. But I realized after the first year, I had two, you know, I didn't have 10, yeah. you know, and then the two were starting to take up more and more of my time. And I'm like, okay, this isn't going to work. So I switch gears. I go into multifamily. But to me, multifamily was, you know, going from buying uh, these small $100,000 houses or $80,000 houses uh, to buying a 10-unit apartment building. And I thought I was big time, you know, yeah. because I skipped right over small multifamily. What's small multifamily? Well, most people think a duplex, a triplex, a fourplex. Yeah. But in real estate, it's not truly a commercial multifamily until it's five units or more. So I thought I was big time, you know, going after a 10 unit building. Uh, and it is, it is big time. It is a huge mental hurdle to get over. Yeah. Uh, but you learn uh, the longer you're in the business that um, you hear a ton of gurus that will tell you, you spend just as much time buying a 10 unit as you do a hundred unit. It takes just as much effort. Uh, the processes are, are very, very similar. So why would you waste your time buying a 10 unit when you right. could buy a hundred unit? And I think that that's a, uh, um, a false narrative. Uh, and, and you know I could give you a lot of reasons why I think that. Uh, I do believe people really are better off starting small in my opinion. But, um, but anyway, uh, we, we quickly found out that we were still, with the hours working, having a hard time scaling. And uh, we were uh, at a uh, CCIM event uh, and heard Gene Trowbridge uh, speak uh, about syndication uh, on a Sunday night. And it was the first time uh, we had ever heard the term syndication when it, didn't, it wasn't associated with gangsters. 
you know, so we didn't know what's this syndication? Is that some kind of gangster takeover of apartment buildings? You know, what is yeah. that? And uh, so we, we bought his book that same night and we read the book uh, on the job at the mill <laughs> uh, the next day and, um, and, and uh, started a conversation with Gene and was convinced that, okay, this is what we have to do. This is the only way we're gonna mm -hmm. scale and started looking into markets and stuff like that. And so we decided that we needed to be in Texas because Texas is kind of the epicenter of apartment investing. So we started going to Texas to, to you know, build relationships and find boots on the ground and start to tour apartments and speak with investors and brokers and lenders and property managers. And uh, so we, we went through probably 18 months uh, where uh, we were in Texas at least one weekend out of the month. And we'd make a long weekend. So we had worked 16 hours, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. On Thursday, we'd only work 12 hours. Wife would pick us up, take us to the airport. We'd fly to Texas, uh, spend the weekend networking uh, and building out, you know, all the systems that we needed and fly back home Sunday night. She'd take us straight to the mill and we'd start over again, you know. And, and so we did that for probably close to uh, four years and uh, where we were, you know, trying to, um, build out this, you know, other business uh, in our spare time. And uh, so we started getting some assets, uh, started getting some, you know, started out as LP investors and, and uh, started investing in some other deals and, and trying to learn the business from the inside. But um, uh, we eventually retired and decided, okay, we finally think that we're in a place where we've got a sense of security. I've built that retirement for my wife. So she's never going to have to be that homeless person on Miami Beach. Right. Um, but now we have the freedom to go out and do this ourselves. And we felt that, okay, now we're full-time. We, we're ready to take that leap and start buying assets on our own uh, and not be the LP investor anymore. And so that's, you know, we started doing that. And then, uh, then we had another big hiccup you know, a, a mistake, a failure, a seminar. Right. Uh, and that kind of brings us full circle. Uh, that was uh, out in uh, Phoenix uh, last year, right as COVID was really hitting real hard. Mm -hmm. And we were in a deal and uh, many people will know this, most will not. Fannie and Freddie, who finance like 80% of all apartment deals, shut down for about a four to six week period of time and we're not doing deals. In fact, they were canceling deals and saying, we're not gonna close on that deal. And they came to us and told us, look, you know, unless you can close in five days, then, you know, we're, we're gonna put this on hold. Mm -hmm. And so we started scrambling, trying to figure out, you know, how we're gonna do this because we weren't scheduled to close in five days. Uh, but, you know, we, we talked to all our investors and we somehow got this thing pulled together and said, okay, we're going to close. And they go, oh, you know, kind of like surprised, like right. we didn't we expect didn't, that. Yeah, we didn't really think you could do it. <laughs> right. We didn't think you could do it or else if we thought you could, we'd have said in two days, right. <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> but, uh, but we come to the table and they go, well, okay, we'll still close, but this has to go back to underwriting. You know, we can't just move forward the way we said we were and then that was our chance to say oh and so it comes back from underwriting and they change all the terms they'll close but not under the agreement well we had just done everything we could to secure a closing in five days with the terms that you had given us yeah. so now we've got to scramble again 
so I could talk about that and I have on a podcast for an hour and a half. So I, I'll <laughs> reduce that just to say that we pivoted so many times because of hiccups like that, that yeah. we went back and forth, back and forth, wound up changing lenders, wound up changing property managers, wound up changing the business plan, wound up going from a syndication to a, a JV, wound up going from a 506B to a 506C. Um, long story short, we spent a lot of money trying to make that deal work. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I, you know, I just, it got to a point where I said, because uh, each time the deal gets a little skinnier, a little skinnier, a little right. skinnier, and, in, and the numbers get worse and worse and worse. And uh, it finally got to the point where the investors that were still with us, we could still close the deal. And they were still behind us to close the deal. But I just got to a point where I didn't feel confident um, because all of that happened over about a, a, a four week period. Mm-hmm where we did not know what was going to happen. You know, the agency lending is shut down. Uh, You know, you went to 30% unemployment almost overnight. Uh, No one knew how long this thing was going to last. And I just, I I made a decision. I talked to uh, the investors and said, look, I'm not confident um, about what's going to happen over the next two years. Uh, We might be going into a recession. We might be going into you know, the worst recession this country has ever seen. Um, and because those numbers, those unemployment numbers were depressionary unemployment numbers. And I said, I, you know, I, we might, we were, the business plan at that point was, we're not going to be able to pay you anything for a year. There would be no returns for a year. And now the business plan was, we might not be able to pay you anything the first two years. And I'm like, look, I'm not confident that this is the best thing for you guys to be getting into. And, and I'm not comfortable um, being a fiduciary of your money uh, on this business plan with this many unknowns. And I, while I appreciate the confidence that they had in, in, uh, in me and uh, in, in our team, uh, I, I just didn't feel it was the right thing to do. So we wound up giving everyone their money back and walking away from the deal. And, um, and so that was of all the um, setbacks I've had in my life, and I've had a lot of them, um, that was the biggest one and the hardest one. Uh, you know, we lost uh, north of six figures in, in that deal, and it wasn't the low six figures. Right. <laughs> it wasn't right. mid, but it wasn't yeah. low. Yeah. Um, and um, so we, at that point, um, you know, the, I was 62 when that happened. And I was like, well, you know, we have the retirement plan. Uh, we could go play golf three or four times a day. Uh, and we really weren't sure, you know, what we were going to do. And um, uh, so we basically took several months off uh, and, and uh, to lick our wounds and reevaluate our life and our goal and try to decide what we're going to do. And uh, so we flew to Hawaii uh, because my son had moved out there uh, a couple of years ago and uh, on the island of Kauai. And my grandson during that time frame, my first grandson uh, was born and uh, my granddaughter, I mean, my uh, daughter-in-law and, and him were living with us. So for his first year, um, I got to be, you know, grandpa every single day uh, and, you know, take care of him every, uh, every day. And so we had really bonded, but when they had moved to Hawaii, I hadn't seen him in a year. And so I thought, well, you know, the only thing in this world that loves you more than, than a puppy dog is your grandson. Yeah. And so I, I get to go to Kauai and lick my wounds and, and get all the free grandpa love I could. And while out there, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm trying to decide, are we going to retire fully or are we going to figure out a different way to move forward? And um, I didn't tell you, but every time I joined a platform or a guru, I always had something that bothered me uh, in each one of those programs. I always thought there's a tremendous amount of value in, in the programs or else I wouldn't have joined. I wouldn't have given them 20 grand or 30 grand or 50 grand. And now I've got, you know, uh, different coaching programs that are, that are offering to coach me personally, you know, and they, they want a hundred grand. And I'm like, man, that's, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty big ask. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but anyway, every time I joined one of those things, there was uh, something that bothered me. Um, and to try to condense it into a real quick story, uh, like I said, I think there's a lot of false narratives out there. Uh, but to, to, uh, I, I thought their business plan was off. Uh, I thought it was broken. I thought it didn't work. Um, but it worked for me. And, and um, the reason I thought it was broken is that 80% of people that join those programs do not succeed. 80% of people yeah. drop out of them. And what's even, even more interesting to me than that is if you've ever attended a big live event, there might be 500 people, there might be 1,500 people. A very small percentage of those people actually joined the program. And I started noticing something. The very first day when the, the speaker gets up on stage, he goes, look, you guys are very unusual. You know, you took, um, you know, uh, a Saturday uh, a free time out of your life to come listen to us speak about these programs that we're going to offer you today. Uh, and so that puts you in a very small class of people, you know, that want to achieve something better in life and, and do something bigger in life. But 80% of you are not going to join us on this journey. 80% of you will not get it. And that's okay, because that just means this isn't for you. But I just said that 80% of the people who do join never succeed. So you're talking 80% of the 80% of the, you know, so it's a really small number when you start thinking about it. And that's the part that I always, one of the things that always bothered me was that uh, if my children went to school the first day of, of, uh, of a hard class, whether it be math or chemistry or science and, or foreign language, and the teacher stood up the very first day and told them, 80% of you are going to get an F. You're not going to succeed at this. And that's okay. It just isn't for you. you know. And if my child came home and said that to me, I would be outraged. I'd be at the school, if not the same day, it'd be the next morning. Yeah. And I'd say, you know, what in the world are you doing? You know, what are you talking about? And so that was kind of what would bother me internally, instinctually, but it was subconscious. It wasn't conscious. The conscious me had those blinders on, you know, okay, I hear you. That's not me. I'm one of the ones yeah. who are going to succeed. You know, tell me what I want to know. Yeah, I'm ready to join the program. I'm all in. Let's go. Uh, and what I came to realize while in Kauai, in reflection, is that their business plan is not broken. It is brilliant because they know who they're, you know, we say in, in, in marketing, you have to know your avatar. You know, yeah. you have to know your customer. You, they are laser focused on their customer. They know exactly who it is. It's that hard charging, take no prisoners, I'm jumping in the deep end of the pool kind of person or yeah. personality who will go all in 
And that's who they're aiming for. And the faster they can get to that person, the more efficient they can be at their business plan. And, and they yeah. have become brutally efficient at getting to that person. And I was that person. Uh, in many ways, I'm still that person. I still have to fight against certain instincts uh, that I have. But there was many pieces in those things that bothered me. And uh, you know, I've shared with you the story of the goose that laid the golden egg. There's something that they have, a very specific thing in these programs that they will never share with you. There's certain secrets you will never get to. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is, is if you got to them, it would destroy their business plan. So long story short is I've had a lot of mentors, a lot of coaches, uh, a lot of teachers uh, in the industry. And I've also had a lot of uh, successes and a lot of failures in my life. And I decided that I wasn't done, that uh, I, I uh, thought I had a path forward to continue uh, uh, some of these uh, itches that you can't seem to scratch. And, um, and so I decided to launch um, my own platform uh, called the GOB Network. Uh, and the GOB Network, in essence, is every program that I've ever been into, uh, I'm bringing everything that I uh, received in knowledge and uh, the resources and, and things that I've learned from those programs and put them on the GOB Network. And in addition to that, I'm also trying to bring all of the success and failures and the lessons that I've learned from business into this platform. And um, people ask me what it is and they want to try to put it in a box and say, oh, you're this uh, or, oh, you're that. Well, what we want to be uh, is everything to yeah. real estate. So we don't want to, we want to disrupt the entire real estate space. Um, and so my real big long-term goal um, is really far reaching, but you know, the baby steps, the foundational piece was just to try to put as many resources as I can into a platform. And it started with apartments. Uh, and the reason it started there is that's what, you know, I was the most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. It's what I felt I had the most, where I had the most to give. And so we built the foundation on apartments and it's still mostly about apartments. Uh, and, and trying to uh, teach you how to buy your first apartment, uh, try to provide you the, the resources. Uh, so it's not just an educational platform. Yeah, we all have educational piece to teach you how to buy an apartment building, or you can use that same knowledge to teach you how to become a better passive investor or a limited partner. Um, but we also, in addition to providing education and knowledge, uh, we provide a very rich tool set um, uh, you know, that are, that people will need for underwriting deals, uh, for marketing, for branding, you know, all of these different pieces that, uh, that some programs are really, really good at giving you, you know, this one piece, uh, but another program would be really, really good at giving you a different piece. And so we're trying to bring all of those pieces together. So if there's something out there that you can get in, in program X, Y, or Z, we want to put all of that in one place. And uh, we want to become really the, uh, I, I say we're built on a business model that comes from the tech industry uh, that's built on the foundation of three basic business principles. And one of those is freemium. So if you think of a uh, freemium model, think of Google, you know, they give away Gmail, they give away uh, yeah. a, a certain amount of Google Drive and cloud space and all these different tools. So we are embracing that model uh, it, especially in the early stages 
of the business. You know, we want to give away as much as we can. And then the second piece of it, uh, we, we want to build a, um, a crowdsourced hive mind. And the easiest way to visualize that is think of Wikipedia. So when Wikipedia started, uh, all the knowledge that's on Wikipedia used to be in 27 volumes of books that people right. would go door to door and sell to you. And they were yep. called the World Book Encyclopedia or the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yep. You know, and if you didn't have one at home, there was one in the library. You know, and when you had a paper due, you always went there, you know, to, to start, <laughs> your, uh, start your paper. And or Google. <laughs> or, well, back then, Google didn't. I'm 63. Google didn't exist. Uh, this is back in the days of the card catalog. And many people won't even remember what that is. It's right. like a corded phone. What's a corded phone? Uh, but, um, but anyway, uh, when Wikipedia came along, you know, they, the people, the, the establishment said, you know, you've got a couple of nerds over here in, a, in, in their garage pounding away on, on a typewriter and they think they're going to have, you know, we have professional scholars that uh, we have over a hundred scholars that wrote these books and you're going to do this with just what, you know, a couple those nerds just, you know, they didn't take them seriously. And the power that they had was that they couldn't build that network themselves. But if they opened it up to the entire world, anyone can write an article and put it on Wikipedia. So you don't have a hundred scholars. You, those hundred scholars can also add to Wikipedia, right? But so can every scholar in the world. And you don't even have to be a scholar. Anyone can put an article on Wikipedia. So almost overnight, they put World Book uh, and Britannica out of business, almost overnight, yeah. because you had just now um, the, the greatest repository of knowledge in the history of mankind, all at your fingertips on the internet. Now, the, that was the power of that hive mind. Now, it's also its biggest weakness. Because although anyone, you know, if you think about that, anyone can put an article on Wikipedia, yeah. meaning that, you know, even, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the kid next door, you know, could write an article right. on, on, you know, it doesn't mean that it's good stuff. But the reason it works is that everyone is an editor. Everyone is responsible for the accuracy. Everyone's responsible for saying, hey, you know, Wikipedia, you need to check that out. It's not it's not right. It's not accurate. Or they can go in and they see a mistake. They don't have to tell Wikipedia to check that. They can actually make edits yep. and improve it. And so that idea to me is extremely powerful. So we want to bring that to the platform. And so the platform is never going to be about me. It's never going to be Jim Biggs's platform or Jim Biggs, the guru. I think it's hubris. It's, um, ooh, a poor little hillbilly boy with a with a big word. Uh, I use, but it wasn't three syllables. If it were three syllables or more, I it would have never dropped out of my mouth. Be too much, yeah. <laughs> it would have been too much. Um, but um, but I think it's really arrogant uh, to stand up and and be the source of all knowledge for people to say I'm going to listen to that guy. You know, he knows everything. I, I think that's you've got to have a really big ego. Uh, to be that guy. And I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm definitely not the sharpest tool in the shed, you know, so the more people I can surround myself with, the smarter the system becomes. And I don't need to have all the answers. 
And in real estate, there's a, there's a thousand things that can go wrong. Uh, there's a thousand obstacles that'll prevent you from being successful. There's a thousand obstacles that are gonna get in your way to getting that first deal done. And knowledge is only one of them. So we wanted to have the hive mind. If, if, as a, uh, if I wanted to label myself as a guru, which I do not, but if I did, uh, I might be able to answer or overcome 10 problems, 10 obstacles. But I said, there's a thousand to overcome. So you're still 990 short. Right. And I don't have the answer. Yeah. So that means to me that if I want my, my, if I want the platform, our platform to be successful, I need at least 999 or 990 other answers, right? 990 other people, a hive mind to overcome all of the obstacles that a person might come up against. So what do some of those obstacles look like? Well, many people get in this business and they don't have the net worth to get a deal done. So they need that. So we can provide net worth and we can provide it in such a fashion that they don't need to spend 18 months flying to Texas every month looking for net worth. Mm -hmm. They don't need to uh, fly to Texas every month looking for boots on the ground. They don't need to fly to Texas every month to network uh, with other apartment investors and like-minded people. So those are all obstacles to overcome. Liquidity is another yeah. one. You know, not many people, if, uh, you know, people listening to this hopefully know that uh, if you're going to buy an apartment building with agency debt, there's a requirement that your net worth uh, has to be equal to the amount of money that you need to borrow. And that 10% of that has to be liquid, meaning you have to have the cash in your hand. Now, not physically in your hand, it can be in stocks or it can yeah. be a savings account. Uh, but it, what it cannot be is an IRA or 401k, you know, things that you, if you needed the money, you have immediate access to. So it pretty much is, you know, your stocks, your bonds, and your cash in the bank. And so if you want to, uh, if you need to borrow $15 million, your net worth has to be 15 million. Yeah. Well, less than 2% of the population are worth $15 million. So it's kind of hard, you know, 98% of the people you're going to ask to be your net worth are going to have to say no, right. you know? Right. And so that's a big obstacle to overcome. And the liquidity, 1.5 million of that, you need to have in, how many people have 1.5 million in their savings account? You know, <laughs> right. most of Just us are- sitting there next to them. <laughs> right. We're, most of us are lucky if we've got 150,000 in our yeah. savings account or 15,000 in our yeah. savings account or 1,500. Yeah. You know, if you look at the percent of people that only have 1,500, versus the people that have 15,000, let alone the people that have 150,000, you know, and we, we can't even, uh, so it's not an easy thing to find that necessarily, but that's what we want to provide. We want to provide an easy way for you to find that. Yeah. And that's, you know, we're building that into the platform. So those are all obstacles uh, that, uh, that will get in your way uh, in trying to find uh, your first apartment deal. And so we're trying to put all of those pieces together. And then the last piece of it is we want it to be open source. So as we're building things, um, I'll give you, you know, one of my big, big goals. I want to use machine learning and AI to underwrite deals. Now, yeah. underwriting, it, 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 there's an art to underwriting. Uh, it's not just 
a science. It's not just data science, but a lot of it is. It's a combination of those two things. So uh, in underwriting, it's really time consuming to take all the data and put it into an underwriting model. And so I want to figure out a way and I can't do it. I'm not smart enough to do it. You know, um, I want to figure out a way to take that OM T12 and rent roll and populate it almost instantly. Like, you know, literally, you know, how fast a computer uh, makes a decision and, and does calculation almost immediately put it into an underwriting model so that now we can start get away from the data entry right. and, and the physical part and start doing the mental work, which is analyzing that data and, and start uh, the nuance of the market, the nuance of manipulating numbers. You know, can I cut this if I need to add there or can I add this to increase that? You know, all of those pieces and allow us to concentrate on that and not get hung up because honestly, I am horrible, horrible at underwriting. And the reason I'm horrible is I go down every rabbit hole and I get stuck on a cell and I'll, I'll open up and ask anybody who knows me, look at my computer screen. There'll be 70 tabs open because I'm at, I'm digging into every hole I can to figure out why this is that, yeah. you know? And so for a good underwriter, they can take all that data and put it into their underwriting model in 15 minutes. Yep. For me, it'll take 15 hours. And um, I made some very critical mistakes very early on in learning to underwrite that uh, I've learned really bad habits. And consequently, to unlearn those takes a lot more effort, uh, you know, than learning. And so if you want to learn to be a good underwriter, let me tell you, there's some very good tricks that you can uh, employ. And I'm happy to share them with you. But uh, don't do it the way I did. <laughs> or else you're, you're always going to be uh, very slow at it. Now, I understand all the concepts and, and I'm good at, um, you know, pulling apart the data and asking you uh, about your assumptions and knowing where the data can be manipulated so that you can make the numbers say whatever you want them to say. You know, so I, I'm good at uncovering that kind of stuff. But um, um, so we, we want to we be able to shortcut a lot of that and make everyone uh, on uh, to a, some extent at a level playing field, but not starting at first base, starting at third base, right. you know? And so that's one of our big goals and, and we need a hive mind to do that, but we also need open source. So if you think about Linux uh, versus Microsoft, so they both started roughly about the same time. And again, it's that Wikipedia model, you know, Bill Gates is sitting over here in Seattle saying, you know, I know we started in a garage, but, you know, we quickly started elevating and hiring the best, you know, and you guys are saying you're not going to hire anybody. You're just going to continue to be a bunch of nerds in the basement, right. you know, <laughs> trying to build out code. It'll yeah. never work. You know, you don't have discipline. You don't have structure. You don't have systems, you know, all of these different things. And so for the first 10, 15 years, Microsoft was 100 percent accurate. They just became the biggest operating system in the world. Uh, and. Uh, blue past Linux and that whole idea. But what they didn't know was this is the, the time, uh, the old a Aesop fable of, you know, the tortoise and the hare. Yeah. So Linux, um, I don't know if, if most Americans would realize this, but Linux is the largest operating system in the world. It is the most popular operating system in the world, just not in America. 
not in the United States. Yeah. In the, but and and that's no longer true either. So Windows no longer runs the internet in the United States. Microsoft does not run anything that you think you that it really runs. So if you work at a large corporation, you see Windows on your desktop. Yeah. You see Excel on your desktop, Outlook on your desktop. But behind that is this intranet that is running this whole company system. That's Linux. Yeah. It's all open source. And outside of America, Linux is the default operating system. And the open source idea of Linux, if you don't know what that means, it means that anyone can go into the Linux code. It's not hidden. It's not locked down. It's open to anyone. So anyone can go in and break it. Anyone can go in and make it better. And the reason it works is because everyone can do it. So imagine, if you will, sitting over here as a professional programmer at Microsoft, and you're working on this new thing, and we'll go back a few years, and we'll say that uh, you're working on this thing called Excel, and you're going to put this program together. And your bosses have very, very specific things that they want you to do. And they want it to have these very specific features. But you have this idea that, no, you want this other piece to be added on. It would make it so much more powerful. And they come to you and say, look, we told you, Jason, this is what we need. Yeah. Okay. I know you've always come up with these big ideas. You know, <laughs> we don't have time for that. You need to concentrate. You need to focus. Yeah. So what do you do at night when you go home? You know, Linux is working on this other thing called Libra or Calc or, you know, some other program. Yeah. And you say, you know what? They will let me put my idea in there and I'll give my idea. I'm working for Microsoft in the daytime. At nighttime, I'm over here giving <laughs> my great ideas to Linux. And anyone can do that. So you not only have everyone, you've also got the best of the best over here at these other companies, Oracle or Microsoft contributing in their spare time because they want to get credit for their idea. They want to have the liberty, the freedom yeah. to implement their ideas without being constrained inside of that corporate environment. And anyone that goes in there and changes even one line of code, even one little piece of one little line of code makes it better. And if you multiply that by thousands, by millions, you start to see the power of that. And what many people don't realize is that what started out as a competition, Microsoft now, over half of all of Microsoft's code is open source. Facebook, yeah. half of Facebook's code is open source. Most of the AI that we're moving forward with today is open source. Half of the, um, of the AI at, uh, at Tesla is open source. And it's open source because they know the fastest way to grow and accelerate is to allow everyone. I can, if I'm paying you, I can only have, I've got a finite num, uh, amount of money that I can pay for a finite number of programmers. But if I'm not paying you and you're doing this strictly out of, of joy, of love, of you enjoy yeah. it, you know, now I've got an infinite number of programmers helping me achieve the same thing. So the piece that they don't make open source is just kind of the piece, the monetized piece, the piece that we need to keep to ourselves so that our business plan works. And so we love that idea of open source because we have a lot of things we want to uh, we want to break 
the underwriting models that are out there. There, there's a thousand different underwriting models, and so far I've not found one that in, it really does everything. You know, almost every one of them has limitations, and and we want to try to to create something that's all inclusive. You know, uh, and we don't want to do it just in underwriting. So in in our big 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 goals, we want to bring those ideas to bear against everything in real estate, and uh, and that was only I only answered one question so far. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, that was that was actually perfect. A lot, a lot to I, uh, unpack. Um, well, first of all, thank you for your service. I don't I actually don't think I knew that uh, you were in the military. I don't, I don't think we talked about that last time. So thank you for your service. We That's not, we may not have incredibly important. I was struck many times throughout your your uh, talk there of of just. I mean, I already knew we had a lot in common, but the. The thing that gave me chills is was finding out that your friend business partner had gone to jail for child molestation because I actually had exactly that same thing. Not not a business partner, but like one of my best friends growing up, I found out sort of just like you did. It was like someone, I actually got, I think a text picture of a news article. Like, is is this him? Like, yeah. like no, you know, you just, you just don't know. And, and I think- uh, It takes your breath away. Yeah, it really does. I mean, it's been, that's been a, a hard thing for me, you know, and even years later, and it's you, your point about sort of, you just trust people inherently, that's how you start, you know, a relationship. And that's, I'm the same way. And it's like, sure, it's going to burn you sometimes, but I would argue that that's also, that is a, that is your superpower. That is, that is our superpower in a way in that, you know, you, you, I think as an entrepreneur, you're able to take those leaps because you're trusting, sure, things are going to, things are going to go wrong. There's going to be uh, failures or seminars. If you're Rod Cleef, like things are going to happen, but at the same time, you probably won't achieve as much if you don't trust that things are going to work. So I, I think it's kind of, it's a, it's a, you know, two-way street, but I, I'll take, I'll take that, you know, optimistic side about people and humanity I just, you know, at times you think that stuff's going to happen and it's going to change your outlook on people. And I still, I still will fall into, you know, I still will, will just, you know, sort of be right in that, in that trusting mode. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th thank you for, for sharing the story. Uh, like I said, there's, there's a lot there. And I think the, the fact that you sort of kept coming back to real estate is another another big point about it in that you're it's there's a reason for that right there's a reason where you found out okay all of these other things they weren't they weren't as stable as we might think you know you managed to to work your way through getting a, a retirement at the mill but also if you had gotten hurt or something like that that you couldn't keep going you know it's like people think that a regular job is the most stable, safe way to go. But realistically, you know, as you kept coming through real estate, it was you're finding that actually the most stable thing I can do is create these passive streams of income so that then I can do whatever I want and taking those risks or, or having something like, you know, you experienced at the start of COVID not ruining you because you have this, you know, sort of system in place, this infrastructure of, 
you know, building these other streams of income. It's like you can have one go wrong and and obviously go very wrong for you in that situation. But that, you know, that COVID did that to a lot of people uh, that were a lot less prepared for it. You know, it's like 30% unemployment. That's a big deal, right? It probably the vast majority of those people didn't have other things in place that they could, you know, sort of recover from. So it, it's, uh, it is, I'm struck more and more by, you know, kind of what, where people think entrepreneurship in real estate is, is risky. I, I'm struck more and more that it's actually maybe the safest bet, you know, that having, having something in place so that if something happens, whatever that is, you know, illness, birth of a child, you want to spend time, any of those things, you have something in place that you don't have to say, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, you, you talked about Miami Beach, I, I sort of, there's a lot of homeless people in Los Angeles here, it's, you know, it's considered sort of a, a problem that needs to be fixed. And sure, I don't want people to be homeless. But I also, in my mind, I've said this to my wife, it's like, if we were ever homeless, this is where I would be homeless. <laughs> because it's amazing like the weather is it's amazing it's like home. it's no wonder you know I, I wish that nobody had to be homeless but if you're going to be I mean I'm from Boston if I was homeless in Boston I would have started walking to California and <laughs> go to the nice weather and this you know same thing with Miami Beach it's like you're you might as well be in a place where it's nice to be outside <laughs> but it's it's kind of like just that that safety the idea that a you know a regular w2 job is the safest way to go through life i'm just becoming more and more convinced that that it's not that it's you're you're one event away from you know it being a problem and exactly you know a lot of people a lot of people experienced that throughout covid and so it's been you know covid's caused a lot of tragedy tragedy but i i think it is really you know kind of it was very eye opening for me um so again, you know, thank you for that. I think the the GOB network, um, and I'm happy to be a part of it, is is kind of an amazing idea. And, and you know, your your thoughts on the the open source part of it, I I had never really thought of it in that concept, and it's actually really a really great way to to structure something and, and sort of allows people to be a part of it, kind of at whatever level. Right. So it's, you know, if you have, you know, anybody, like you said, anybody can contribute to Wikipedia. Right. So I can contribute to Wikipedia. It's if I contribute on, say, veterinary surgery, because that's what I know, it's it's valuable. But if I want to know something else that's outside of my realm, I can look at that what someone else has contributed and then you know i give back by contributing in veterinary surgery or, or whatever component of that is and i know you've you've sort of done that with the gob network where you you'll say you know we you you can be a part of it but we also want you to be a part of it in the sense that you're you're doing things in that network so i think it's it's a really great uh platform you know for people people to check out i think the the guru system, the mentor system, if you find, I think if you find the right mentor for you, probably can, can work well, but you're hundred percent right. There's going to, there's always going to be things that, you know, sort of people, I think, hold back a little bit. It's like, you, 
you can ask questions you may not get it's they don't want to no one wants to share you know their entire secret i guess is kind of what it comes down to and so um you know having this group where everybody can kind of contribute and see what other people are doing and ask questions and stuff i think is is just just a great idea so um i think people should join it and we'll definitely have uh, all of the links to that in the show notes too so that you know people i yeah, i hope I you'll did. have a lot of people reaching out to you so I, I did want to say that that's uh, I get asked often uh, about the cost to join, mm -hmm. uh, and I remind everyone that one of the the um, components is that it is a premium model. Uh, so we're not charging financially yeah. uh, for someone to join the program, but I do want everyone to understand that it's by invitation only, uh, and the reason for that is that um, we are not. There is a cost to join the network. And that cost is we want, uh, we really only want go-givers. Um, that's the kind of people we want to be associated with. Uh, so we want people that the cost to be on, on the platform is that we expect you to give as much as you get. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that goes back to that uh, Wikipedia piece where, you know, giving back to uh, helping when you learn something, helping someone else learn something. Um, you know, when, when you... Uh, take something, you leave something behind. So that's kind of the cost to be on the platform. But anyone can do that. Anyone can make a contribution, no matter uh, how small, no matter how limited your knowledge, uh, everyone has contributions to make. And I can't gauge your heart. I can't gauge if uh, there isn't, I don't have a test. There's not a, you know, a, a, a test that I can administer that says you're a go-giver. So we don't really care who you were yesterday. We only care about who you are today and moving forward. And we can measure that. We can see how you're participating, how you're trying to, to not only um, take from the platform, which that's why it's there. We want you to take. We want you to take abundantly because we want you to succeed. But we can also see that you're helping other people by contributing, by giving back, by participating. And participation alone is a big, big gift. You know, and, and so, um, so that I, I did want to say that, uh, that uh, it's a different kind of, uh, of cost. Right, right. Yeah, well, it's, a, I mean, it's, it's a, I think, a very fair way to, you know, sort of charge for it. But it's um, because it's a lot of, one of the things I noticed is, and, and you sort of brought up this point, but a lot of people, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of gurus, the, the advertisements be like, anyone can get into real estate. You don't have to have money. You don't have, you know, it's all of this stuff. And it's sort of true, but it's, it's not true. It's yeah. not really true that you can just do it with no money or you have to find someone who does have money because those, as you mentioned, you know, those, those key principles the people with net worth and liquidity, that's, that's a big part. When you're getting started, like you said, it, there's lots of people that don't have $1,500 in their Most bank account. And so, right, that's the majority. And so it's like to say that anyone can do this and it, you know, you don't have to have any money. It's not, it's not really the case as you'll very quickly find out the first time you talk to a lender, it's, they're not going to give you, <laughs> they're not going to give you, you those you're not going to give it to me. <laughs> right. It's like, my, I was told anyone can said. do this with no money. It's, it, you know, right. it's kind of like that. So the having a platform for people to connect and bring to the table whatever skill they may 
you know, they may have, it's whether it's, you know, having the, the liquidity and net worth, or it's just being the person that is there, the boots on the ground and doing, you know, a lot of the, the, the dirty work the, in, in the pit of the, yeah. of the mills, that kind of stuff, you know, yeah. to get there, to get started. It, it's good to, to bring all of those people together. And, and I think to me, that's maybe the most part, most important part of any of the mentorship programs. It's the, the, you know, sort of connections that you're forming in the network and all of that. Um, and it's nice that the GOB network does that, you know, kind of, as you say, like open source. So it, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, Jim, I, it, we've, we've talked a long time and I don't want to keep you all day. Although I, every time we talk, I feel like we could talk <laughs> all day. Um, I was just going to maybe ask you a few questions here that I try to ask uh, of, of each guest. And I think some of it is stuff you've touched on, but um, basically to, to really kind of get to the point of why I created this podcast. It's called the Know Your Why podcast. And I think a lot of times in, in these, you know, sort of real estate circles, you'll hear people say, you need to know your why. And they're like, what's your why? Oh, it's this. And it, it, I feel like it gets brushed over a lot. But the, for me, it's actually been, I know that my why was when my son was born. That's what made me realize I really need to I really need to do this. And so what I like to kind of ask every guest is, is what is your why? Um, and, you know, what really drives you? And I, I'm finding that I feel like why's change throughout our lives. You may have a, a different why when you're 20 than when you're 40 than when you're 60. But I think, uh, so, so what is your why? What's driving you at this point? Yeah, the easy answer is your family, you know, your wife, your kids, your child, uh, leaving behind a legacy. Um, and I, I think that throughout my lifetime, that's always been there. But I think selfishly, many of us uh, think about uh, if you're the kind of person who can allow yourself to think about your death. Um, you know, we just had, uh, unfortunately, uh, one of the patriarchs of our family uh, pass away this last weekend. And um, you always think, man, I hope people come to my funeral. I, I, I hope there's a long line of people that, why do you want that? Why, what is that really saying about you? You wanna be loved, you wanna be remembered. Yeah. You know? And I think that we, we don't necessarily, if we're not braggarts, uh, here we go, we're gonna test our hillbilly uh, ability to say a three syllable word. Uh, if, we want, if we don't want to be a braggadocio, uh, if we, uh, then we won't verbalize those things. But I think that almost all of us have that in our heart, uh, that we want to be remembered. And for me, that always, the two of those things together uh, was why um, I was building a business. You know, I wanted to be somebody. You know, I wanted to be somebody. Uh, that was selfish. But I wanted to leave something for my wife and for my kids. I wanted to leave some security. I wanted to make sure they were protected. And I think that's just a fatherly instinct, a husband's instinct. Um, and so both of those things are my why, but I've not ever really succeeded in those whys. You know, I came to realize pretty quickly, like my wife said, what if this never happens? What if it, you aren't successful? There's no guarantee that you're gonna see, succeed at any of these. But um, I knew that with the GOB network, when I started it, that I could give back. And that was, you know, that little 
poor kid inside of me that was raised in church, you know, still wants to give back. You know, I want to test the limits of the abundance mentality the, as I know it, because all of us think that we have the abundance mentality, but it's different for each one of us. And I wanted to test the boundaries, my personal boundaries of that idea. And so when I started this, I'm not Mother Teresa. You know, I didn't decide to start this just to give everything away for free. You know, my ulterior motive is if I can give enough away, if I can provide enough value, then hopefully people will uh, want me to help them overcome some of their obstacles. And maybe I can use my experience, my schedule of real estate own, my net worth and my liquidity uh, to be a partner on their deal and help them get what they need. And it helps me get what I need. But very quickly, the GOB uh, network has become a passion project for me. And it has become the thing that I want to leave as my legacy. Uh, it, you know, I, I want it to be self-sustaining. That's one of the reasons I, I don't, um, that I want to use that tech model, that crowd model, uh, the hive mind, all of those things. I want it to be self-perpetuating. I don't want it to depend on one person. I don't want it to fall apart. I think we're at that stage already that if I were to step away and walk away from it tomorrow, that it would keep growing. It's got enough momentum that the people that are there, and that's something I want people to know that this is not my platform. It's your platform. I just happen to be the guy who started it. You know, I happen to, to be the guy that got the ball rolling, but it's everyone else is keeping it rolling. And that's, that's my why. I, I want this to be here long after I'm gone uh, and to continue to provide value for as many people as I can. Awesome, that's awesome. Um, we'll definitely put this stuff in the show notes, but do you have, how do you want people to reach you? What's, what's the best way to kind of, oh, get in touch? there's, there's no best way. It's, it's so easy to find me. I'm yeah. everywhere <laughs> on social media, but, um, we'll, we'll drop a, I have a little link, um, that we can drop in the, uh, in the, uh, in the chat or in, in the show notes, okay. uh, that is a bitly link, uh, to Jim Biggs. And it has all of my contact information, uh, all my social media contacts, uh, you know, all of that stuff. But I'm, I'm, uh, you know, very easy to find Jim Biggs at Gmail, Jim Biggs one on LinkedIn, uh, Jim Biggs on, you know, um, uh, Facebook and, and all the platforms. I'm easy to find. Okay, perfect. Well, yeah, and we'll have all of that in the show notes. Um, okay, Jim, one, one final question. Uh, what, what piece of advice do you have for someone kind of getting started and maybe has, you know, a similar background, maybe this question's for me, has a similar background to you <laughs> in terms of, you know, life story and things like that. What, what would you say to them, uh, you know, perhaps as motivation or advice? Well, the easy answer is to uh, go to gobnetwork.com <laughs> and, and, and uh, see if you can uh, get on the platform. Uh, but no, you've got, to, you've got to find a way uh, to overcome the, you know, I said there's a thousand obstacles um, and, and you can overcome some of them, you, you know, you can overcome some, I can overcome some, collectively we overcome more, but our beta test for this platform was to come to someone like you and say, Jason, here's a deal. We, you don't have to find the deal. We already found the deal. Jason, you don't need the net worth. We already have it. 
You don't need the liquidity. We already have it. You know, we wanted to eliminate every obstacle except for one. Yeah. And the one is you. Right. And that's always going to be the biggest obstacle you have to overcome. And that one between your ears, there could be millions of things that you allow your self-talk to prevent you from doing this. So my advice for people is to find a way to automate if you can and force behavior on yourself. Um, and don't try to make giant changes all at once. Everybody says, go big or go home. That's even my hashtag on LinkedIn, go bigs or go yeah. home. <laughs> you know, uh, but in, in some ways, the longest journey begins with the first step. And so find the first step. What can you do? What is the first step that you can do every single morning that you wake up that you know will take you just, I don't care if it's an inch closer to your goal. I tell people my life is has been lived all uphill and every two steps forward is one step back, but I've continued to make progress up that mountain mm -hmm. and that I feel like there's never even been a flat spot where I could catch my breath or coast you know, that it's all uphill and I'm still looking for it to crest and start going down. Yeah. You know, so uh, many of us feel like that. We feel overwhelmed. And I think you have to find what do you know you can do every single morning? Is it make one phone call to a Jason Valera and say, you know, hey, Jason, you know, I'm new to this space. Uh, I just wanted to reach out and say hello and see what you're doing and see what I'm doing. Are there any synergies? Is there anything I can do to help you uh, achieve your goals? Is there anything uh, you can do to help me get further along? Find one thing that you know you can do every day. And when you're really, when it's become such a habit that you can't not do it, you know, it's automatic, then add one more and add one more and keep going up that hill. And as long as there's always two steps forward and only one step back, you're still going up. You're still making progress. And that's been the story of my life. You know, I'm the millionaire next door, not because uh, of some brilliant business plan, not because of uh, lightning that struck once. It's because I've had steady progress for 40 years or 50 years. Yeah. You never, you never give up. You don't lose until you give up. So you just keep, exactly. you just keep going. Exactly. Jim, this, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your time and having you on the podcast. It's been great to share your story. Um, but I guess we'll, We'll say goodbye for today. Uh, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Jason, it's my honor. I really appreciate you getting up this early in the morning and taking <laughs> time out of your day uh, to talk with me. You know how much I love talking to you. I, I, uh, I'm insp inspired after every conversation. So thank you. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. <laughs>